Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff, I'm one of the pastors at Salt Church. Special warm welcome if you're here visiting, it's great to have you with us. Uh, can I add to what Michael and Sean have shared about... Uh, giving thanks to God for our new home series. I've been at Salt Church for eight and a half years, and I reckon Grove on Wednesday night was one of my top 10 favorite moments at Salt Church in eight and a half years. If you missed it, tune in online, catch something of it. It was so fantastic, a moment to give thanks to God. How about I pray as we dive into this new part of the Bible? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you speak to us. Thank you for this book of Deuteronomy. We pray that you would teach us the things that we need to hear. Please comfort those of us who need comforting. Please challenge those of us who need challenging. Please do your work in us and amongst us for your glory. Amen. One of the most confusing words in English is love. Uh, Most other languages have multiple words for different types of love, but English only has got one catch-all word. And to show you how confusing it is and how many ways we use the word love, I've got some song lyrics for you about love. Uh, Bonus points if you recognize them all. Your love is lifting me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Can anybody find me somebody to love? The love shack is a little old place where we can get together. I was made for loving you, baby. You were made for loving me. Even if you were broke, my love don't cost a thing. What's love got to do, got to do with it? You might as well face it, you're addicted to love. I remember you said sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. Love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. People got me, got me questioning, where is the love? All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. And now all those songs are stuck in your head, so you can thank me for that later. But love means so many things there, doesn't it? So many opposite things there. Love is just this catch-all word. So what does it mean in Deuteronomy 6 when God says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength? What does it mean in Deuteronomy 11 verse 1 when it says, Love the Lord your God and keep His requirements, His decrees, His laws, and His commands always. Or 10 verse 12, What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. What does it look like to love God? And who is God that he asks for love? And how do we love God right now? That is what our new series is all about. We are back in the book of Deuteronomy. We looked at Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 11 last year, and we're diving into chapter 12. And it's all about how to love God. And there's three things that we need to know if we're going to understand Deuteronomy and if it's going to make any difference to our lives, if it's going to transform us. First thing we need to know is that this is God's word to us. Uh, Sometimes we can be a bit nervous reading from the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, there's two parts to it. New Testament, kind of the life of Jesus and his apostles that he sent out after him, and then the Old Testament. 
The New Testament covers about 80 years. The Old Testament covers about 2,000 years. And it's very distant. It can feel very uh, confusing. It can seem irrelevant at times. Sometimes it's really confronting. God, as we meet him in the Old Testament, looks and feels a little bit different to God as we meet him in the New Testament. He's not different. It's the same unchanging God, but it feels different. And the Old Testament is unfamiliar, so it takes more work, and sometimes it feels like hard work. And to be honest, it will be. Some of the things we'll see over the next eight weeks are going to be hard work to understand. Some of them are going to feel strange. Some of them will be outright offensive. I'm not pretending it's going to be easy. So why would we bother? Because of 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, which says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is telling us that every part of the Bible, Deuteronomy as well, is breathed out by God. It's God's word, the, the true and living God, your maker and your savior, if you're a Christian, will speak to you personally by the Holy Spirit, as we read Deuteronomy. It may be hard, but it's not going to be too hard because God wants his people to hear this. God wants to speak to his people through this book. And that's why he caused Deuteronomy to be written in the first place. That's why he's made sure it's recorded for us and passed on to us three and a half thousand years after the events it talks about so that we can know God and learn from him and love him. Second Second thing we need to know, where this fits in history. Uh, This is not fiction. This is not a made-up story. This is real people, real places. You see that in the very first sentence of the book. So come with me, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. Let's have a look. It says this, These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. You know the place that he's talking about. Uh, let me show you where this is on a map. Uh, top right-hand corner, we're at number 13 there. I'll explain the numbers in a second. But we're at number 13 up there. We are in kind of modern-day Israel, the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, I Google mapped, I searched this on Google Maps. This is the place we're talking about. You can go and visit this place today. Uh, Nigel and Natalie just got back from Did you go to Al Rama? Who knows? Maybe. (laughs) Uh, You can go there. You can go visit this place if you wanted to. Um, But we're not talking about modern history. This happened three and a half thousand years ago, around 1400 BC. That's where Deuteronomy comes from. And this book is a, a long sermon, a long speech from Moses. The whole book is Moses talking to ancient Israel. What's he talking about? The big topic of the book. Will ancient Israel love God... By keeping the covenant. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Before we get to Deuteronomy, we meet the God who made the world. And he made humans. He made Adam and Eve. But they rebelled against him. Got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Humans increasingly got worse. And then rebelled against him. And God chose Abraham. And he made these promises to Abraham. He promised him he'd become a great nation. He promised them this special land. Abraham had a kid, Isaac. Isaac had a kid, Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids, which become the nation of Israel. And they moved to Egypt in the time of Joseph because of a famine. 
And then a new Pharaoh comes into power and he enslaves Israel. And God calls Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. And you get the 10 plagues and they pass through the Red Sea and they come to Mount Sinai. And God says this to them. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the covenant God makes with Israel. And covenant, kind of a fancy Bible word, it means an agreement, a deal, a contract. And God's promise is that they will be his treasured people. He promises them the land. He promises to shower them with blessing. He promises them the privilege of knowing and being loved by and living with the one true God. If, if you obey me fully and keep your side of the covenant. And what does it look like for ancient Israel to keep the covenant? How do they love God? By keeping God's commandments. Uh, This is a phrase that comes up all the way through the book. I'll show you two places. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all these decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Or let me show you one more. Come to chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. Look this one up with me. Look at verse 28. Deuteronomy 12, verse 28. Be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. So they love God by keeping the covenant, by trusting him, by obeying him, by being devoted to him, by worshiping him. Love means many things. How does ancient Israel love God? They keep his covenant by obeying, trusting, worshiping him. And the stakes are very high for them, as God says this to them. A Deuteronomy is mostly a book of laws, uh, which, unless you're Zayn, is probably pretty boring. Uh, he's, he's a lawyer. Um, but it's actually intense, this book. It sounds dry, but it's actually intense because Israel are facing three potentially fatal threats. The first threat is that Moses who led them out of Egypt, is about to die. This is his last message to them. He's not coming with them into the promised land. So this is his last message, his last chance to urge them, to warn them to love God fully. And you get a bit of an example of that intense language in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Let me read this for you. I'll try and capture some of the drama of this. Here's what verse 1 says. This is Moses speaking to the people. These are the decrees and laws you must Be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. He's desperate. He's urging them. He wants to make so sure that they listen. And the second potentially fatal problem is that we've been here before. This is not the first time that ancient Israel has stood on the edge of the promised land. Uh, Let me take you back to the numbers. If you look on the top left corner now, 
You'll see Egypt, number one. When they left Egypt, they came down, crossed the Red Sea, came down to Mount Sinai where God gave them the law, made that covenant with them. And then see number five, they got right to the edge of the promised land and they refused to go in. They refused to trust that God would give it to them. And so they disobeyed God. And so number six, they wandered in the desert for, in circles for about 40 years until a whole generation died. Now we're at number 13 and a new generation. The kids of the people who came out of Egypt are at the edge of the promised land again. Are they going to be any different to their parents or will they rebel and disobey God too? And the third challenge is that there's potentially fatal temptations in the promised land. People already live in the land and they worship false gods and Israel may be enticed to serve those gods too. So God saved them. He made a covenant with them. He told them how to love him by obeying his commands. Are they going to do it? And believe it or not, that was all a long introduction to Deuteronomy chapter 12. But that's what we need to know if this is going to make any sense. And Deuteronomy 12 is all about the word worship. Have a look with me, Deuteronomy 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. The nations in the promised land worship their gods this way, but you must not worship your God in that same way. Uh, let me ask you a question, and this is not a rhetorical question, getting some audience interaction here. When you hear the word worship, what do you think of? What is worship? Shout it out. No such thing as a wrong answer. Praying? praying? Yep. Praise. praise? Even <laughs> praying and praise? We'll go both. <laughs> Obedience? Temples. temples? Think of temples? Yep. Giving time? Giving time? Idols? Yep. What do people worship? Like us, people around us, what do people worship? Sport? Money? Jobs? Education? Themselves, other people? Possessions? Awesome, these are great. Uh, I I cheated, I looked up the dictionary. Uh, This is what the Cambridge Dictionary says. How it defines worship. Two definitions. First one, reverence offered to a divine being or supernatural power. For example, the majority of people in Indonesia worship Allah. Or second definition, love, respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. For example, as a child, I worship my older brother. I am the older brother. So, (laughs) Uh, As I look at that definition, I've got some issues with this. I think that's the same definition. Uh, I think it's actually only one definition there because worshipping something is showing reverence to it, respecting it, admiring it, being devoted to, loving it. You could worship God. You could worship your sibling or worship a celebrity or worship a sports star or an artist or a partner or worship the dollar or worship security or worship influence or worship fame. There's thousands of things that you could worship What makes it worship is that you're devoted to it. 
you admire it, you chase it, you offer things to it, you offer reverence, you respect it, you give your life to it. Uh, it could be God, it could be anything, but that's the heart of worship. And in the promised land, these people worship their gods, many gods in many different places. Because look at verse 2. God says, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. The people in the promised land believed that some places were more effective for worshiping their gods. The top of a hill was better than the bottom of a hill. And uh, trees are full of life, and so their gods are more likely to be pleased with their worship if they do it under a green tree. And they're so keen to worship their gods that their statues and the stones and all the things they used in worship, they're everywhere in the land. The top of every hill under every spreading green tree, which shows, I think, how devoted they are to their worship. They're devoted to this, and it shows how widespread this is. It's all through the land but also shows how dangerous their worship is to Israel because they already have a God, the God who brought them out of, out of Egypt, the God who made a covenant with them and told them how to love him. And you see the danger in verse 4. Look with me, verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Or come to verse 29. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you're about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. It's not so much that they'll worship other people's gods, though that is a threat for them. The problem is not so much that they'll worship other people's gods, but that they'll worship their God in other people's ways. They'll do it the way other people do. And this is so serious that God commands them to do something that would definitely get us cancelled if we did it today. And on the front page of the Mercury with the headline, Church Destroys Indigenous Sites, or something like that, look what God says in verse 3. Break down their altars smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. This is pretty far from respecting and celebrating the cultural and religious heritage of the people in the promised land. God tells his people to ruthlessly, systematically remove all traces of their worship, wipe out even the memory of the worship of their gods in those places. So that Israel, you'll not be tempted to worship your God their way. Now, why is God so concerned about this? Why is it such a problem for ancient Israel to worship their God the ways the people around them do? Why would it be such a problem for us to worship our God the way the people around us do? I think there's two reasons. The first reason not to worship the Lord our God their way, is that it's deeply insulting to God. Now, it might look to us like we honor and admire and respect God when we worship God the way the people around us worship career or money or the dollar. But really, it's deeply insulting to God. Because when we do that, we're telling God how he should be pleased. We're telling God who he should be rather than letting God tell us who he is. Um, 
maybe you've heard this idea, maybe you've said this yourself and, and believe this. Uh, have you ever heard someone say, I like to think of God as, or the God I believe in is, and then we put in what matters most to us. Uh, so for example, I like to think that God doesn't care about religion and rules and he just wants me to be a good person. Or the God I believe in wants me to be happy. Uh, there can be a Christian version of this too, where we get one of God's attributes and we play it off against another one. So we know God is holy and he hates sin, but we also know God is forgiving. And so I like to think that God is less holy and more forgiving. We can do the same thing as Christians. That's kind of the problem for Israel, for ancient Israel. That, that's what they would be tempted to do in the promised land. To imagine that God is pleased by any worship and not to let God tell us how he wants to be worshipped. But not all worship of God is acceptable to God. Some of it is deeply insulting. Um, I've used this illustration a bunch of times, but I only know three illustrations, so I'm going to use it again. Uh, I think it's a helpful one. Uh, this is my wife, Fiona. She's the one who's not a child and is not me. Uh, and my wife, Fiona, loves tea and loves long conversations, long chats with people. But because she's from the country, she calls it a cuppa and a yarn. Uh, she doesn't like seafood. She's not a fan of seafood. Imagine if I said to her, look, you say you hate seafood, but I really love seafood. So I'd like to think that you love seafood too. And so for our next wedding anniversary, I've booked us all-you-can-eat seafood to show that I love you. Or imagine if I said to her, look, you say you love long chats, but I prefer to think you only want me to talk to you when I want something from you. Isn't that just so insulting? Isn't that just deeply wrong to ignore what someone says about themselves and tell them who we want them to be? To admire and respect and love and be devoted to them in the way that we want to be. Especially when that someone is the God who made you and who saved you and the ruler of the universe. I think you see the heart of the problem for ancient Israel in verse 31. Have a look with me, verse 31. This is pretty heavy what it says here. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. That is just horrific what the people in the promised land did. How can ancient Israel possibly believe that their good and perfect loving God wants them to do that? More than that, that he's pleased when they do that, that he's worshipped when they do that. That is just so deeply insulting. And if he really is their God, then they must worship and love and obey God as God tells them to, not however they want. And it's the same thing for us if you're a Christian. The second thing, though, the second reason is that when we worship the Lord our God the way people around us do, it's deeply unsatisfying for us. The people in the promised land worshipped in so many different places, which shows that it's widespread and also that it's ineffective. Because if it worked, they'd only need one place. But they sacrificed to their gods everywhere in the hope that maybe one place might work. Contrast that with verse 4. Look at verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. God's saying he's going to choose a place to put his name. 
And putting his name there is kind of like proof that he'll be there, proof that he owns it, and it's a legitimate place. A little bit like uh, putting your name on a sale of contract for a house or a car, or putting your name down on your rental agreement. God is saying, this place, this is where I'll be. This is where my name is. I own this place, and you can meet with me here. I dwell here, guaranteed. And when they meet with God there, it looks like rejoicing. Because what do they do there? It's in verse 6. Look at verse 6. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. They sacrifice, they eat with God, they rejoice. This is not the corruption and the cruelty the people in the promised land have when they meet with their gods. This is exciting. This is satisfying. They're not making offerings everywhere in the hope that one place might work. They're coming to the place that God guarantees to be, to have a meal with God. It's close, it's intimate, and it's so rich that Moses repeats it almost immediately. Look at verse 11. He says almost the same thing. Then to the place the Lord your God would choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you'll vow to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns. It's this rich picture of rejoicing before God. This is what God invites his people to. To worship God in any other way is insulting to God. And it's so unsatisfying for us because worshiping God is so good. God is the only one who can satisfy us. God's actually the only one who can handle our worship. Uh, I read a book a couple of years back called True Friendship by a man named Vaughan Roberts. And in this book, he's talking about how only God can satisfy us. Only God is worthy of our worship. And when we worship God, it frees up relationships to be what they can be. I think relationships is one thing that people around us worship. What happens if you worship relationships instead of worshiping God? Here's what he says. If we expect anyone other than Christ, whether a spouse or a friend, to be our saviour, who can meet our greatest needs and satisfy our deepest longings if we worship them, we are bound to be dissatisfied. By looking to that relationship to bear that much weight, we will spoil it or even break it altogether. Our neediness and the demands that flow from it will choke our friends rather than allowing them to flourish. I think it's quite a powerful insight God is actually the only one who can bear the weight of our worship. Everything else will fail to satisfy us. It will be spoiled. It will be crushed as we demand more from it than it ever could give. But if God is so satisfying, don't you wonder why would ancient Israel ever want to turn from that rich meeting with God to the corruption and the unsatisfying emptiness the people in the promised land had? But they were tempted And in fact, they did that very thing. And we are tempted. And in fact, we do that very thing. Which raises a question for us. Is this God's command to us? 
we're reading Deuteronomy three and a half thousand years ago. Is this the same thing that God wants for his people today? In some ways, yes. In some ways, it's exactly the same for us, but in some ways, not. In some ways, it's changed. Let me show you what's the same. We still love God by keeping his commandments. Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commands. John 14, verse 15. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. John 14, 23. We still love God by keeping his commands. We still trust and honor and worship God by obeying him. What's different, though, is that we're on the other side of the cross, the other side of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so, I stole this phrase from Andy, we need to read the Old Testament cross-eyed. We need to read it cross-eyed. We need to see that Jesus makes us God's people. So we're on the other side of the cross, the other side of the life, the death on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. We are not ancient Israel. We become God's people only through Jesus. And so we need to view the Old Testament through the cross and see how Jesus changes everything. And here's, here's one or two quick ways. Uh, Jesus perfectly worshipped his father, the only one who ever did. He perfectly worships his father and he dies for us and he makes us God's people too. And when we see the Old Testament through the cross, through Jesus, there's some differences that come out for us. First difference, there's a different place. The place that ancient Israel went, that that place where God chose to put his name, that was the temple for ancient Israel. That's where they'd go to offer sacrifices. They'd meet with God in the temple. They'd rejoice. God set his name on the temple to live with his people. But we've got a new place, a different place, Jesus. Jesus is the place where we go to meet with God. Uh, There's this one time where Jesus is having an argument with the religious leaders in the temple, ironically, because they're worshiping God in the temple in the ways all the people around them would worship instead of God's way. And here's what Jesus says to these religious rulers. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. I think this, the point here is that the place where God lives, the, the temple, the place where God meets with his people is Jesus. Well, let me show you one more from Ephesians chapter 2. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The place has changed. Jesus is where God meets with his people. Jesus is where God lives. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus makes us the place where God lives. Let me show you the rest of Ephesians 2. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What's this mean? It means that God lives in the church and in individual Christians now by the Holy Spirit which makes a huge difference. The place God lives is us. We don't have to look everywhere in the hope that maybe we'll find God. If you're a Christian, God is in you by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to travel to this special place and make this big pilgrimage. That picture of close, intimate relationship in the presence of God, if you come to the temple, that's what all Christians have all the time. We don't have to go to a special place to experience this. Anywhere you are, 
you have this. Because God lived with his people in the temple and in Jesus and now in Christians by the Holy Spirit. Second difference, there's a different worship, a different sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would worship by taking an animal from the field and taking it to the temple and offering it as a sacrifice and having a meal with God. Uh, so imagine, uh, imagine a sheep just wandering around in the paddock. It's got its, its pretty cute sheep. It's got its own plans, its own dreams for its life and what it wants to achieve. But then it's taken from the field. It's carried to the temple. It's killed. It's put on the altar and it's given to God. Its life and its dreams are gone. It belongs to God now. That's how God's people worshipped in the Old Testament. Worship God in the Old Testament. They'd offer that sacrifice, have a meal with God. How do we worship God in the New Testament? How do we offer sacrifices? Come over to Romans chapter 12. Now, the last passage we'll look at, Romans chapter 12. It says this, Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. How do we worship God truly and properly? Not the way that the world around us tells us to worship God. How do we do it truly and properly? It's by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's still a sacrifice But in the New Testament, see that we are the sacrifice. There's no sheep. We are the sacrifice. Our bodies and our lives are the sacrifice. So we have our own plans, our own dreams and ambitions for our life. But like that sheep, we climb on the altar and we die to that. And we belong to God now. So all I am is God's. All I own is God's. My time, my energy, my money is God's. My body is God's. My future is God's. My whole life is God's. Not 10% of me. Not me on a Sunday between 5 to 7 p.m. All my time, all of me. This is how we worship God. In response to his mercy in Jesus, we give him us as a living sacrifice. Each day, each moment of every day, we choose to love God by keeping his commandments. Um, Often we use the word worship and we talk about singing and praising God uh, and praying to God. And that's totally right. But worship is everything. Worship is all of life lived for God. That's the difference. That's the change that comes. We sacrifice ourselves. We Each day, each moment of every day, we choose to love God by keeping his commandments. And the last difference... We have a different resistance. Have a look at verse 2, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, Unlike ancient Israel, we don't remove the different religions and the different ways the people around us worship. We don't remove them. We resist them by not conforming to them. Around us are many alternative objects to worship, many alternative ways to worship. And the people around us are trying to conform us to be like them. Uh, the picture here is, is conforming. is kind of like there's a mold and the world is trying to squash you into the mold. That's the picture idea here. Uh, and we've got to make no mistake. People around us are trying to get us to conform to be like them. 
everything you see on social media, everything on your news feed, everything on the TV screen, every message in advertising, it's all trying to conform you to be like the world. But rather than remove and eradicate and destroy that influence, we resist it. We fight it so we're not conformed to it. And we become transformed. We're we're transformed as God changes, renews our minds. So we see what God loves and we see the kind of worship that pleases Him. That's the differences. Now, what does this look like on the ground? I had real trouble this week as I was looking at this to go like, I get it in principle, but like, how do you make that concrete? What does it actually look like? And I think it's hard to apply because the way that the world worships now is more subtle than bowing down to a statue or having this kind of special precious stone. And there's so many different alternatives. But let me give you one example of what this looks like. And hopefully this can help you play it out for all the different other ways that we might worship God the way our world worships. Uh, What would it look like if someone was worshiping their career? If people were worshiping their career, what do they do? Let's try and understand that, and that'll help us see, do we worship God the way that people worship their careers? What do people do? You would be driven. You'd never stop. You'd never rest, because if you're not moving up the ladder, if you're not getting promotions up the corporate ladder, you're falling behind. And you don't enjoy work for its inherent value. You use work as a means to an end if you're worshiping work. Uh, to, uh, the end is proving to yourself, proving to others that you matter, you're important because you're succeeding. And promotions and more responsibility and more money is proof that you matter and you're succeeding in life. And if you're not hitting your targets, your KPIs, if you get passed over for a promotion, you've got less value. Now, if we worshiped God the way our world worships career, we would find our value as people and as Christians based on how well we're worshipping God and not in the fact that we belong to God because of Jesus' perfect obedience and perfect worship of His Father. And when we fail to live the way God wants, when, not if, when we fail, we wouldn't come to Jesus to be forgiven. We'd try and prove to God that we're more serious. We'd be more driven. We'd set our own targets. Maybe I'm going to try and read the whole Bible in one sitting. You know, those things to just prove that I... And we'd treat God as if he's this hard, cruel boss instead of our loving father. And we would expect God to reward us for keeping his commandments. Because that's what happens in your workplace. You work really hard, you get rewarded. We expect God to reward us if we kept his commandments, instead of seeing that obeying God is deeply satisfying for us and disobeying God is deeply insulting to God. And we wouldn't enjoy God as an end in himself. We'd use God as a means to get something else. We'd forget that God is the only one who is worthy of our worship, the only one who can handle our worship. Hopefully that helps you see what it might look like and you can play that out for all the other Other ways our world challenges us. Let me wrap up and pray. Worshiping God is what we're made for and what we're saved for through Jesus' death. Nothing else can satisfy. And anything less than true worship of God is deeply insulting to God and deeply unsatisfying for us. So let me reread Romans 12. And I'm going to channel the intensity of Moses here. Let me reread this to you and then I'll pray. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, not the way the world tells us to worship. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, satisfying, and perfect will. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, forgive us for ever thinking that your word would not be relevant to us. Forgive us for worshipping you the way the people around us do. Forgive us for being so easily conformed. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus. Thank you that you are in us by your Holy Spirit and with us always. Please help us to be living sacrifices and please transform our worship of you. Amen.